we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We take as our text this evening, verses 10 through 12. We'll read the first 12 verses of the chapter, and then we'll focus on those last three verses that we read. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And then here follow the words of our text, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter has pointed to the glorious inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's a gift of salvation which is kept in store for those who have been born again unto a living, a lively hope. That inheritance is precious. That inheritance is preserved for us in heaven. And God is now preserving us in the enjoyment of that glorious inheritance. He talks about the trials, the struggles that we've experienced and the fact that we receive the fullness of that inheritance in the way of trials, in the way of difficulties. Pilgrims and strangers characterized the life of these saints as they wandered and as they experienced opposition in the midst of the world in which they live. The trials of our faith also working salvation. And the believer then, able even by a wonder of God's grace to rejoice in temptation, to rejoice in tribulation, able to see and to understand that God has a purpose for this, as well as 
for the positive experiences of life. Now he focuses on a bit of a different theme, although he continues that theme of the precious nature of our salvation. The prophets knew the suffering of the church. They also knew the sufferings that Christ would endure. And those prophets knew that those sufferings were necessary with a view to the realization of the glory that would come. And now, the inspiration of God is directed to the writer to impress upon us that truth. That suffering was the means unto a glorious salvation. And that we understand the nature and character of that salvation. So wonderful that salvation is, that it's something that the prophets of old delved into. They studied it. They took a personal interest in it. They couldn't understand or fathom the fullness of it. And so they searched and inquired into it. But even more than that, that even into which the angels desire to look into. And this salvation is the salvation of our souls in Jesus Christ, whom, while we don't see Him, we rejoice in Him. We're thankful for Him. Our faith, not based on sight, but rejoicing in the wonder of what He's done for us. The focus here now then is the sufferings that Jesus endured and the necessity of those sufferings. Thirty years had passed at this time since Peter had experienced the gloom of Gethsemane and what had followed. Now you children even remember how Peter responded to the fact that Jesus said he had to suffer and die. What did Peter say back then? Peter said, no, no, don't talk about suffering. Don't talk about dying. And Peter was continually trying to do everything in his power to dissuade Jesus from talking about such suffering and such imminent death. What a different tone Peter now gives as this theme now becomes the theme of his epistle. That against which he had the strongest objections when he was with Jesus, now he makes the central theme, the importance, the necessity of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Peter had been the one who had taken his sword and he had tried to defend Jesus by swinging at the head of Malchus and only taking off his ear. Peter was the one who had constantly protested against the fact that Jesus did not need to suffer, and that the disciples would be there to protect him and to care for him. And Peter had to learn the hard way. Was he as strong as he thought he would be? No. Where was he when Jesus needed him the most? He had fled, and he was off denying his Lord. Peter now understands the fullness of the wonder of that salvation. He understands that suffering. And it's important that we do as well. Do we understand the glory of our salvation? Do we understand what Jesus endured on our behalf? So easy it is for us to take it for granted. Are we thankful for Christ and for his suffering? We look at the searching of the prophets. Searching into their salvation. Searching by means of the Spirit. And searching for our benefit. They were searching into the wonder of salvation. And that comes out here, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched 
diligently. He's talking about the salvation that he's made reference to in the preceding verses. He's talked about the fact that that salvation is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It doesn't pass away. Verse 4. He's talked about this is the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 5. This is the salvation which is occasion for unspeakable joy, even in the midst of suffering. Verses 6 and 7. This salvation is Christ himself, according to verses 8 and 9. It's to be with him. It's to love him. It's to know Jesus Christ in all of his fullness as the one to whom we are bound and united, from which nothing can separate us. The final blessedness of that salvation is talked about in verse 9, where it's the salvation of our soul. Realize then in all of its fullness in the glory of that heavenly bliss. This glorious gift of salvation is given by God to His people. It's such a great and marvelous salvation that we ought daily, hourly, stand in awe of it. That's the reality here of which the Apostle speaks. We ought be continually in awe of what wondrous works God has performed for us and the greatness and the marvelous character of that salvation of which we are entirely undeserving. The prophets were in awe of it. They were searching and they were searching with regard to the salvation by faith. They wanted to learn as much as they could about it. Now what was their motivation? It was so that they could tell others so that they could speak to others concerning that glorious hope. The prophets, you remember, were boiling over with the Word of God. And the revelation that God gave them equipped them then to speak to others concerning the wondrous works of God. And so they studied. They delved into this glorious salvation. They wanted to know as much as they could, so that they in turn could impress upon others the glorious and wondrous nature of this salvation. And beloved, so it must be with you and with me. To our shame, too often we take for granted this glorious gift. We live as though it doesn't really matter. As though we don't really care. And there's a spiritual slumber that so quickly takes hold of us. How do we show it? We don't pray very fervently. We're not reading the Bible and doing devotions as we should. And there are times when God needs to wake us from that spiritual slumber and God needs to impress upon us. This is the most precious thing you have. What are you doing with regard to it? How are you living in connection with it? You need to focus on this. You need to be living out of this as this is the central aspect of your life and your hope. The glorious salvation that God has given us through the suffering of His own Son. Focus on that. Live for it. Now that gift of grace includes all the blessings of salvation that have been earned by Christ. We know that salvation has to do with God taking us from the deepest woe and rescuing and bringing us into the highest bliss, the highest glory. That's what God has done. Taken us from the deepest woe and brought us into the highest joy we could ever imagine. And that Salvation is so marvelous and so wondrous that as God's children, 
we will never fully be able to fathom the blessedness of it. As long as we live, we're going to stand in awe of it. As much as we study the scriptures and as much as we delve into it, we still can't begin to scratch the surface of the glory and the marvel of its blessedness. Now, it's going to be revealed in the last time when our bodies will be raised again, when we will be reunited with our souls and we will be brought into the glorious victory that's ours in the new Jerusalem. And the point of the apostle throughout the book is that this salvation is not just deliverance from the penalty of sin. It is that. But it's far more than that. It's a salvation that makes our souls safe and healthy, but it's a salvation also that breathes into our bodies. It breathes into our lives, the very life of Jesus Christ. So that it's a salvation not just for us, but in us. It's a salvation that transforms the whole of our lives, the direction of our lives, the goal of our lives. It's the glorious work of Jehovah God in us. And this salvation then is for us right now a present joy. In the midst of all the struggles and all the challenges, it's this that we look to. It's this that strengthens us. But it's also a hope that is future as we look forward to the full realization of it where there will be no more sin and suffering, no more sorrow and tears. This salvation is identified again and again throughout the book of First Peter with that beautiful word of grace, the grace of salvation. And that grace of salvation is realized for us and worked in us. The prophets prophesied of that grace that would be worked in our hearts. That grace of God worked in our hearts and realized in us. Often that's the way Peter speaks of that grace. The initial wonder by which we know the glory and wonder of our salvation, but then the daily grace that God grants to His children in order to sustain them in the midst of their suffering and trials. The apostle is saying, into this salvation, the prophets inquired. They diligently searched. These prophets were men of God, chosen by God as His mouthpieces. They didn't speak their own words. They were given by God words to speak. The prophetic office was a special office that God had set aside in the Old Testament. We read concerning that office in Luke 1, verse 70. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. These prophets, because they spoke the word of God, did not understand everything that they spoke. And that's what's on the foreground here. They heard, but understood not according to Daniel, in Daniel 12, verse 8. Amos 3 brings that out in verses 7 and 8. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. The lion hath roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? God spoke to them, and now they had to speak, and they boiled over with that glorious salvation that they now spoke of. But as they did... They were drawn back to what they had said. Drawn back to what they wrote. This means that the writings 
and the speech were not their own. It was something more than their own. They realized that there was a depth to the revelation they were being given. There was a depth to what they were writing that they fully could not fathom. So that they urgently applied their best efforts to the study of that which God had made known to them. Now this fact is proof that God was inspiring them. God was the one who was giving them this word. And that's why they struggled to understand and fully to comprehend it. This was the word of God. So that in a marvelous way, they become pupils of the very words that they speak. They become pupils of the words that they write. One doesn't search his own writings in order to find the meaning of them. He would be able to understand what he wrote in the first place. And if he didn't understand or comprehend it, he wouldn't have been able to write it. Though the prophets, in a certain sense, understood what they wrote, they did not have a full understanding of it. Their writings were like a profound book. And this gets at the mystery of inspiration. It gets at the beauty and the wonder of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are a treasure that are not merely the work of men. The Scriptures are the work of Almighty God. As Jehovah God worked through the prophets to inspire His own Word. And so the prophets needed the true prophet to understand and to explain the significance of what they wrote. They needed Christ. They needed the Spirit in order to assist them. They were living in the time of shadows. They didn't understand everything they were receiving from the Lord. Now, under the New Testament times, God has opened the ears. He's opened the eyes of His children. He's given to us His Spirit, so that we read in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. They hadn't seen the fullness of the promises being realized in Christ. They hadn't realized the fullness of what those sufferings all entailed. They looked forward to They desired it. And now, by God's grace, God pours out His Spirit upon us so that we are able not only to have the Scriptures, but we have His Spirit enabling us to understand and to know Christ and the sufferings of Christ, which are our salvation. Now, beloved, how contrary this is to modern perspectives with regard to the Bible. Today, the church world does not hold the Bible in very high regard. The Bible often is spoken of in terms of a human element and a divine element. And the emphasis then is on the fact that the only way you can understand the Bible is by really delving into and understanding the human authors so that we understand the time period they were writing in. We understand the perhaps the struggles that they were facing. Perhaps even we understand better maybe what was their peculiar influence and so that we understand then how we're able to read them and that we can take them maybe with a with a grain of salt. Paul, after all, was a bachelor. What did he know about marriage? And here's Paul writing all these things about marriage so that we kind of cast that a bit into doubt and say, but 
But we need to take that into consideration that Paul, after all, was a bachelor. He never was married. He really didn't know so much about marriage. Hence, we are to not take his writing on marriage as though it holds such a high position of authority. Contrary to that, we have many passages of Scripture that speak clearly of God's work of inspiration, including this one here. The assumption of those is that the writers got all their material from some other source. Historians, philosophers, writers of their day, perhaps. Whereas our text clearly teaches inspiration. Jehovah God inspired men of old. And Peter is going to elaborate on this later on in chapter 1 of Second Peter, in verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God so moved these men that they wrote His own infallible inspiration and revelation concerning Christ. Writings that they themselves then could not fully understand or fathom because the Spirit was the one moving them. Writings that don't have private interpretation. We can't understand them based on the private lives of the authors, but rather we have to understand them in connection with the whole of the Scriptures. And so, the wonder of God's work with regard to the Scriptures. We confess then the truth of organic inspiration. And organic inspiration has to do with the fact that God so inspired the Bible that every word is His word. And yet He did so through men whom He had used and prepared to write what He wanted them to write. So that He made use of their personalities. He made use of their interests, of their training. He made use of the culture in which they lived. And that's revealed in their writings. They weren't robots. They were living, thinking men. But at the same time, God is the one that's writing it in such a way now that it becomes also their writing. All God's word, word for word. So that, for instance, John, who was a fisherman, has a very simple Greek that he makes use of, whereas Luke is a physician. And the Greek of Luke is much more challenging to read. God making use of the individual gifts of the men and in that way making his word known to his people. We could compare the inspiration of the scriptures to the wonder of God's work of good works in believers. Good works are so completely the work of God by his spirit that even the will and the actual doing of the works is God's work. It's all God's work. At the same time, God works it in such a way that those good works are rightly ascribed to men. So they studied their writings, which were God's own word revealed to them, that the Spirit had inspired them to write, searching what or what manner of time, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The burning question they had was, when would the suffering and glory of Christ be realized? That the suffering and glory of Christ was to be realized was evident from their writings. And we can think of that if we just look at the Old Testament scriptures. Genesis 3, verse 15. 
The fact that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. A star and a scepter would rise out of Jacob, according to Numbers 25. There would be a branch that would come out of the house of David, according to Isaiah 11. And that branch would be called the Lord, our righteousness, who would bring salvation to Judah and to Israel, according to Jeremiah 23. He would be born of a virgin, according to Isaiah 7, verse 14. He would come out of Bethlehem, according to Micah 5, verse 2. He would suffer. He would be despised, rejected of men, acquainted with grief, wounded and bruised. As Isaiah 53 so clearly laid out. The prophets clearly prophesied concerning the coming of the Messiah and the suffering that he would endure. And Jesus himself confirms the words of the prophets in Luke 24, verses 26 and 27. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He speaks that over against the disciples who continually were questioning and wondering, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did Jesus have to die? This is Jesus now appearing to the men on the road to Emmaus. And he's answering their question. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? (coughs) And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When this would occur, that was the vexing question. And Peter now writes in the context of the fulfillment of these prophecies. They've taken place. That which God spoke of in the prophets has now been realized. Demonstrating the word of God is true. Demonstrating Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. (coughs) The prophets were eagerly waiting for this full realization concerning the fullness of their salvation. And now they're given to understand the fullness of it. Now those prophets weren't learned theologians pursuing these questions for the sake of questions. These were men of God with a burning desire for the fullness of God's grace. These were men who were studying because they wanted to know the truth concerning their own salvation. That salvation which was theirs in promise. They understood the marvelous grace of God in saving them. And they realized that that salvation would be possible only through the suffering of God's own Son. The prophets set forth the doctrine of the suffering of Jesus Christ. The prophets had set forth the foundation of the truth of salvation. How is salvation possible? It's only possible because God set one who was able to stand in our place, who suffered on our behalf, one who was very God and very man, and one who was perfectly righteous and took upon himself the full wrath that we deserve. Note the order that's set forth here. They suffered, they studied the sufferings and the glory. One can't have the glory without the sufferings. The salvation was not possible apart from the suffering. And now, beloved, 
we have the privilege of knowing that truth with regard to Christ. We know the sufferings of Christ and the glory that followed. And the apostle's point then is, why would you expect anything different? As you live in the midst of this life, there's going to be sufferings. Just as Christ suffered and then experienced glory, so you now suffer, but you look forward to the fullness of the glory that is to be realized. Now we realize our suffering is not atonement. The atonement is finished. Our sufferings are the continued sufferings necessary for the church of Jesus Christ for a time. Into that they inquired, searching by means of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, we read. The prophets couldn't search their own by their own. They were guided by the Spirit. And it's important that we identify the Spirit here. The Spirit of Christ is the third person of the Trinity. He's given to the incarnate Son of God, to Jesus Christ. So God takes the third person of the Trinity and gives him to now Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. And Jesus then pours out that Spirit upon his church at Pentecost. Now as God was revealing his word then, it was his Spirit that was leading and guiding these men of old. God working in them by his Spirit. As the Spirit of Christ, as the Spirit of the Lord, That's a way already it's talked about in the Old Testament. Even though Jesus had not yet come, even though Jesus had not yet poured out his Spirit on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was at work. And the Holy Spirit was at work through Jesus Christ, coming to the prophets, revealing God's Word to them, but doing it in types, in shadows. Now Christ's work is finished. Now we have the Bible in its completeness. We don't need any further revelation We have everything that's necessary. Now, just as Jesus Christ is the revelation of the second person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is the revelation of the third person. As God takes the third person of the Trinity now, the Holy Spirit, and gives him to Christ. And Jesus Christ pours out that Spirit as his Spirit. Now, the significance of that is this. The Holy Spirit is not working independent of the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is given to the Son in order that the Son pours out the Spirit. And what is the work of the Spirit then? Always in connection with the Son. Always directing us to Christ, to the sufferings of Jesus Christ as the foundation of our salvation. So that the Spirit already in this day, was leading and guiding the prophets to understand the necessity of the Lamb who would be slain for their salvation and for their hope. And the Holy Spirit now, poured out at Pentecost, dwells in His church, gives us what we need in order for us to know and to believe the sufferings of Christ for us and for our salvation. John 7, verse 39 states, But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. 
John 7 talking about that the Holy Spirit was not yet. Now, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit we know is eternal. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given as the Spirit of Jesus Christ to his church until Pentecost. God had given the promise. He that believeth on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That promise could not be realized until the fount of living water was opened. And that occurred at Jesus' resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and God then gifted him with that spirit by which he then poured out that spirit upon his church and upon his children. Now again, beloved, the importance of this is that the work of the Holy Spirit is never separated from the work of the Father and Son. The Spirit does not come to speak His own words, to do His own searching. The Spirit comes to reveal the Father and to reveal the Son. John 16, 13 and 14. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. And He will show you things to come. He shall glorify Me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So Peter now is speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, far before Christ had ever been born. Christ was working in the prophets. And he was working in the prophets by his Spirit. He was testifying beforehand. He was making plain what or what manner of suffering Christ should endure in order to receive the glories that would follow. And the Spirit was constantly revealing and pointing them to the mysteries, the wonders of their writings. Telling them what to write concerning Christ. Telling them the circumstances in history in which Christ would do His work. To signify means that it was pointing. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Always to point. And what was the Spirit pointing to? To Christ. To the suffering of Jesus Christ. To know the sinfulness of man not only, but to know that the only possibility of deliverance is through Jesus Christ. Now he did so through signs, through types, through shadows. Pointing them to the sacrifices. Pointing them to those who are the types of Christ in the Old Testament. Continually the Spirit directing the prophets to the types that God had ordained to reveal Christ and the glory of his work. And what especially was the Spirit impressing upon them? That salvation was only in the Messiah. There was no other possibility of salvation. Salvation was in Jesus Christ alone. And the Spirit was directing the prophets to proclaim that glorious message, to make known the faithfulness of Jehovah God and the truth of salvation through the Messiah, the promised one whom God had spoken of already in Genesis 3, verse 15, who would be revealed throughout the house of David, and specifically through Jesse's, through David, and then through the the line of the kings. God testifying of the reality of His coming and of His suffering. And today, the Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, confirming that wonder in our hearts and giving us to know the joy of that salvation. The doctrine then of the prophets was Christ and his suffering. And that doctrine served as the foundation of their message. And it becomes the message that's preached to us today, Peter says. The Holy Spirit inspiring this glorious message. 
Now, this interest of the prophets is your and my interest. We want to know as much as we can about God and about Jesus Christ and about His suffering. How do I know the certainty and the sure nature of my suffering? Not by looking at myself, not by looking at what I've done and what I can do, but looking at what Christ has done for me. How did He come? What did He do? What did He suffer? Why did He suffer? What does those sufferings point to? Those sufferings, beloved, are the foundation, the basis of our salvation. The Holy Spirit doesn't work an interest that's merely intellectual. The Holy Spirit exposes our sin, causes us to know our need for salvation, and causes us not only to see the perfect obedience and holiness of Jesus Christ, but also His suffering on our behalf as our only hope and our only joy. That's the focus of the Spirit. Direct us to Christ. And the Spirit convicts us of sin and continually is directing us to the Messiah, to His suffering, to His death, to His resurrection, as that which is the foundation of our salvation. Now, beloved, as we think upon, as we look at those wonders, we stand in awe. We stand in amazement. This is the salvation that Jehovah God has accomplished for me. He gave His own Son that His own Son might suffer and die in my place. The righteous, innocent one who had done nothing to make himself deserving of it. We are able to turn away from the lusts of this world. We are able to turn away from the pride of life because of this glorious salvation. Because nothing in this world can compare to what God has done for me. That's the searching. That's the salvation that the apostle here speaks of. The prophets were consumed with this. This was their life. This was their joy. This was their hope. And so it is, beloved, for you and I, as believers who have been born again unto a glorious hope. And they searched for our benefit. Unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel. They received an answer to their searching. The Spirit revealed to them that the suffering of Jesus Christ would not occur during their lifetime but that it would be for the saints that would follow. They would be recipients of that salvation yet, but they labored in the darkness of the shadows on the basis of the promise, and they labored for the sake of the church, laboring for you and for me, so that we might have hope, so that we might have joy unspeakable, that in the heaviness and the troubles of this life, we might know the certainty of this glorious salvation. The complete revelation would not be for them. It would be for us. Now that doesn't, again, take away the wonder of their salvation. But Hebrews 11 tells us the nature of it in verses 13 and following. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. They saw them. They believed them. They didn't experience the reality of it yet. That was reserved for the church of the New Testament when Christ would die on the cross, when he would be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. The prophets looked to the future, not 
immediate, but to the future of the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the one who would suffer for them and for their salvation. Now, Peter is even more specific than that. He says, these prophets knew that they were ministering for you. You who are living in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, you have many troubles who are undergoing intense suffering and severe trials for the strengthening of your faith. For you, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would be revealed were written. God had so inspired them that they were writing for the hope of those who would be subject to tremendous affliction and trouble. And not only were that, was that the case of the saints during Peter's time, but we know it yet lies future for us, those who are yet living when Jesus comes back again. Tremendous suffering will be ours at the time of the anti-Christian kingdom. God in love inspired the prophets to write for our hope and for our encouragement. Knowing the struggles, knowing the inspiration that we needed, these prophets laying the foundation of our hope, the foundation of our salvation, Christ, and the suffering of Jesus Christ and His glory. There can be no preaching apart from that. The prophets were the basis of all of the New Testament sermons. So that when the apostles went on their missionary journeys, what was it that they proclaimed? They proclaimed Christ as the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. They preached the gospel unto you. And that's what the apostle now speaks of. Are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. The glorious truths of Christ's suffering and death and the glory that followed are now reported by those who preach the gospel. The suffering of Christ, that's gospel. The offering of Jesus Christ in our place for us. An act in which the entire triune God participated as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An act that realized one of God's eternal thoughts, the salvation and the wonder of His church. A glorious event for the salvation of God's people that Jesus took upon Himself that wrath that we deserve and that He endured being forsaken of God. It's no wonder that this work of Christ is primary, of primary interest to the Spirit in revealing the Word. Now, if such emphasis was given to the suffering, how much more to the glories that follow? And that's the hope that lives in the hearts of God's children. The suffering of Christ must be preached as the foundation of that glorious hope. It must be preached. Other methods are attempted of conveying that suffering of Jesus to the church. And we reject them especially drama, movies. We understand no movie is able to convey the true suffering that Jesus endured. Because when was the time period of his most intense suffering? It was during the three hours of darkness. Nobody saw what he was experiencing. It was during that time that he experienced the intense reality of having been forsaken by his father. The best a movie's able to do or a dramatic presentation is stir up the emotions of pity, of compassion for an innocent victim. But Christ, as the divine Son of God, 
cannot be depicted. But secondly, no man can pretend to play Jesus. It's blasphemy for a man to claim to be the Christ, to claim to pretend to act out the life of Jesus Christ. And finally, beloved, the Son of God is revealed by the Spirit through the Word. We look to the Bible. We look to the preaching of the Bible to know the nature and the extent of Christ's suffering. We're not going to learn through idols. We don't learn through pictures that can comprise a lie. Do we want to grow in our appreciation for our salvation? Do I need to grow in the assurance of my salvation? Then I need to be in the Word. I need to delve into the Word. I need to study that Word. I need to meditate upon it. I fight sin and I fight evil by meditating on the promises of God's Word. I study in what the prophets revealed, what the apostles preached. And I pray for God's Spirit to impress that truth upon my heart so that the unseen Savior becomes a living reality within my heart and within my soul. That the innocent Son of God suffered for me and for my sin. And that my salvation that is not based on anything of myself, but Christ alone. That's the preaching of the gospel, the glorious good news that is sounded forth by Christ, through His Spirit, through mere men. The wonder that is necessary for us to know our salvation. We need to be searching, inquiring, not into the time of those events. They've been revealed. They've been preached to us through the apostles and through the ministers of Christ. We have now the reality. And now, we need to be appreciative. We need to be daily in awe of this great wonder, this glorious salvation that God has given. Now, beloved, doesn't that prick us? Do we live out of the joy of this salvation like we should? Do we wake up every morning with this glorious hope living in our hearts? Encouraged in the midst of the troubles and struggles of life that we have a salvation that is being kept for us and that God is preserving us unto the full enjoyment of that glorious salvation. Isn't that so easy for us to take this for granted? We're too much living for the things of this life. Too much pursuing the things here below. Consumed with earthly possessions so that we're not in the Word like we should. We're not living in the enjoyment of that glorious salvation as we ought. We're not searching the Scriptures like the prophets. Beloved, the preaching of Christ must stir our hearts unto greater devotion, a love for Him and devotion to His Word. And God, by His Spirit, stirs our hearts unto that glorious desire. That's the fruit of Pentecost. The Spirit comforting. The Spirit leading into the truth. How does the Spirit lead us into the truth? How does the Spirit comfort us? By directing us to Christ. Directing us to the wonder of His suffering and the glory that is to follow. The word translated sent depicts a mission. And the mission is that of the Holy Spirit proclaiming that glorious work through His church. Guiding the church so that that glorious truth is proclaimed. Beloved, into these truths, the passage states, even the angels 
Now look. That's a marvelous thing. The angels look into it. They long to know such a good thing. Now we think about the fact that Peter, when he rushed to the grave after the resurrection, stooped down. He looked into the grave clothes, wondering if the body of Jesus had been stolen. The angels stooped down into the events of this world in order to examine the wonders of God by His Spirit into His church. They know what's going on, but they can't know the transforming power of Christ in their lives as God's elect do. They know enough to cry out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. The angels are lost in admiration and praise, longing for the realization of that new Jerusalem where all will be focused on God and His glory. And yet they can't know that love and that mercy of God like we do. The angels don't know the grace of God like we do. Jesus did not take upon Himself the nature of an angel. He took upon Himself the nature of man. If the angels take such an interest into the sufferings of Christ and the glory that follow, how much more we, beloved, we who are the recipients of this grand salvation, may we rejoice in the wonder of which the prophets prophesy. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for that great and glorious wonder that Thou hast made known unto us. Cause that we might ever stand in awe of it. That we might delve into the wonder of that work of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. That daily we might stand in awe knowing that we are undeserving. And yet thou hast given unto us thy own Son as our substitute, our sacrifice. And cause, Lord, that in the midst of the troubles and trials of this life, that which lives in our hearts is an everlasting hope clinging to the wonder of that salvation that is ours in Christ. Lord, sustain us and strengthen us in the trials and afflictions of this life. And may we give all glory unto Thee. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 375. 375.